of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maugham, Chapter 85. About a fortnight after this, Philip, going home one evening after his day's work at the hospital, knocked at the door of Cronshaw's room. He got no answer and walked in. Cronshaw was lying huddled up on one side, and Philip went up to the bed. He did not know whether Cronshaw was asleep or merely lay there in one of his uncontrollable fits of irritability. He was surprised to see that his mouth was open. He touched his shoulder. Philip gave a cry of dismay. He slipped his hand under Cronshaw's shirt and felt his heart. He did not know what to do. Helplessly, because he had heard of this thing done, he held a looking glass in front of his mouth. It startled him to be alone with Cronshaw. He had his hat and coat still on, and he ran down the stairs into the street. He held a cab and drove to Harley Street. Dr. Tyrell was in. I say, would you mind coming at once? I think Cronshaw's dead. If he is, it's not much good my coming, is it? I should be awfully grateful if you would. I've got a cab at the door. It'll only take half an hour. Tyrell put on his hat. In the cab, he asked him one or two questions. He seemed no worse than usual when I left this morning, said Philip. It gave me an awful shock when I went in just now, and the thought of him dying all alone. Do you think he knew he was going to die? Philip remembered what Cronshaw had said. He wondered whether, at that last moment, he had been seized with the terror of death. Philip imagined himself in such a plight, knowing it was inevitable, and with no one, not a soul, to give an encouraging word when the fear seized him. You're rather upset, said Dr. Tyrell. He looked at him with his bright blue eyes. They were not unsympathetic. When he saw Cronshaw, he said, He must have been dead for some hours. I should think he died in his sleep. They do sometimes. The body looked shrunk and ignoble. It was not like anything human. Dr. Tyrell looked at it dispassionately. With a mechanical gesture, he took out his watch. Well, I must be getting along. I'll send the certificate round. I suppose you'll communicate with the relatives. I don't think there are any, said Philip. How about the funeral? Oh, I'll see to that. Dr. Tyrell gave Philip a glance. He wondered whether he ought to offer a couple of sovereigns towards it. He knew nothing of Philip's circumstances. Perhaps he could well afford the expense. Philip might think it impertinent if he made any suggestion. Well, let me know if there's anything I can do, he said. Philip and he went out together, parting on the doorstep, and Philip went to a telegraph office in order to send a message to Leonard Upjohn. Then he went to an undertaker whose shop he passed every day on his way to the hospital. His attention had been drawn to it often by the three words in silver lettering on a black cloth, which, with two model coffins, adorned the window. Economy, celerity, propriety. They had always diverted him. The undertaker was a little fat Jew with curly black hair, long and greasy, in black, with a large diamond ring on a podgy finger. He received Philip with a peculiar manner formed by the mingling of his natural blatancy with the subdued air proper to his calling. He quickly saw that Philip was very helpless and promised to send round a woman at once to perform the needful offices. His suggestions for the funeral were very magnificent, and Philip felt ashamed of himself when the undertaker seemed to think his objections mean. It was horrible to haggle on such a matter, and finally Philip consented to an expensiveness which he could ill afford. 
I quite understand, sir, said the undertaker. You don't want any show in that. I'm not a believer in ostentation myself, mind you, but you want it done gentlemanly-like. You leave it to me. I'll do it as cheap as it can be done. Having regard to what's right and proper, I can say no more than that, can I? Philip went home to eat his supper, and while he ate, the woman came along to lay out the corpse. Presently, a telegram arrived from Leonard Upjohn. Shocked and grieved beyond measure, regret cannot come tonight. Dining out. With you early tomorrow. Deepest sympathy. Upjohn. End of segment one. Chapter 85, Segment 2 In a little while, the woman knocked at the door of the sitting room. I've done now, sir. Will you come and look at him and see it's all right? Philip followed her. Cronshaw was lying on his back with his eyes closed and his hands folded piously across his chest. You ought by rights to have a few flowers, sir. I'll get some tomorrow. She gave the body a glance of satisfaction. She had performed her job, and now she rolled down her sleeves, took off her apron, and put on her bonnet. Philip asked her how much he owed her. Well, sir, some give me two and sixpence, and some give me five shillings. Philip was ashamed to give her less than the larger sum. She thanked him with just so much effusiveness as was seemly in presence of the grief he might be supposed to feel, and left him. Philip went back into his sitting room, cleared away the remains of his supper, and sat down to read Walsham's surgery. He found it difficult. He felt singularly nervous. When there was a sound on the stairs, he jumped, and his heart beat violently. That thing in the adjoining room, which had been a man and now was nothing, frightened him. The silence seemed alive, as if some mysterious movement were taking place within it. The presence of death weighed heavy upon these rooms, unearthly and terrifying. Philip felt a sudden horror for what had once been his friend. He tried to force himself to read, but presently pushed away his book in despair. What troubled him was the absolute futility of the life which had just ended. It did not matter if Cronshaw was alive or dead. It would have been just as well if he had never lived. Philip thought of Cronshaw young, and it needed an effort of imagination to picture him slender, with a springing step, and with hair on his head, buoyant and hopeful. Philip's rule of life, to follow one's instincts with due regard to the policeman round the corner, had not acted very well there. It was because Cronshaw had done this that he had made such a lamentable failure of existence. It seemed that the instincts could not be trusted. Philip was puzzled, and he asked himself what rule of life was there if that one was useless, and why people acted in one way rather than in another. They acted according to their emotions, but their emotions might be good or bad. It seemed just a chance whether they led to triumph or disaster. Life seemed an inextricable confusion. Men hurried hither and thither, urged by forces they knew not, and the purpose of it all escaped them. They seemed to hurry just for hurrying's sake. End of segment two. Chapter 85, segment three. 
Next morning, Leonard Upjohn appeared with a small wreath of laurel. He was pleased with his idea of crowning the dead poet with this, and attempted, notwithstanding Philip's disapproving silence, to fix it on the bald head. But the wreath fitted grotesquely. It looked like the brim of a hat worn by a low comedian in a music hall. "'I'll put it over his heart instead,' said Upjohn. "'You've put it on his stomach,' remarked Philip. Upjohn gave a little smile. "'Only a poet knows where lies the poet's heart,' he answered. They went back into the sitting-room, and Philip told him what arrangements he had made for the funeral. "'I hope you've spared no expense. I should like the hearse to be followed by a long string of empty coaches, and I should like the horses to wear tall, nodding plumes, and there should be a vast number of mutes with long streamers on their hats. I like the thought of all those empty coaches.' As the cost of the funeral will apparently fall on me, and I'm not overflushed just now, I've tried to make it as moderate as possible. But, my dear fellow, in that case, why didn't you get him a pauper's funeral? There would have been something poetic in that. You have an unerring instinct for mediocrity. Philip flushed a little, but did not answer. And next day, he and Upjohn followed the hearse and the one carriage which Philip had ordered. Lawson, unable to come, had sent a wreath and Philip, so that the coffin should not seem too neglected, had bought a couple. On the way back, the coachman whipped up his horses. Philip was dog-tired and presently went to sleep. He was awakened by Upjohn's voice. It's rather lucky the poems haven't come out yet. I think we'd better hold them back a bit, and I'll write a preface. I began thinking of it during the drive to the cemetery. I believe I can do something rather good. Anyhow, I'll start with an article in the Saturday. Philip did not reply, and there was silence between them. At last, Upjohn said, I dare say it'd be wiser not to whittle away my copy. I think I'll do an article for one of the reviews, and then I can just print it afterwards as a preface. Philip kept his eye on the monthlies, and a few weeks later it appeared. The article made something of a stir, and extracts from it were printed in many of the papers. It was a very good article, vaguely biographical, for no one knew much of Cronshaw's early life, but delicate, tender, and picturesque. Leonard Upjohn, in his intricate style, drew graceful little pictures of Cronshaw in the Latin Quarter, talking, writing poetry. Cronshaw became a picturesque figure, an English Verlaine, and Leonard Upjohn's colored phrases took on a tremulous dignity a more pathetic grandiloquence as he described the sordid end, the shabby little room in Soho, and with the reticence which was wholly charming and suggested a much greater generosity than modesty allowed him to state, the efforts he made to transport the poet to some cottage embowered with honeysuckle amid a flowering orchard, and the lack of sympathy, well-meaning but so tactless, which had taken the poet instead to the vulgar respectability of Kennington. Leonard Upjohn described Kennington with that restrained humor which a strict adherence to the vocabulary of Sir Thomas Brown necessitated. With delicate sarcasm, he narrated the last weeks, the patience with which Cronshaw bore the well-meaning clumsiness of the young student who had appointed himself his nurse, and the pitifulness of that divine vagabond in those hopelessly middle-class surroundings. Beauty from ashes, he quoted from Isaiah. It was a triumph of irony for that outcast poet to die amid the trappings of vulgar respectability.
It reminded Leonard Upjohn of Christ among the Pharisees, and the analogy gave him opportunity for an exquisite passage. And then he told how a friend, his good taste did not suffer him more than to hint subtly who the friend was with such gracious fantasies. He laid a laurel wreath on the dead poet's heart, and the beautiful dead hand seemed to rest with a voluptuous passion upon Apollo's leaves, fragrant with the fragrance of art, and more green than jade brought by swart mariners from the manifold, inexplicable China. And on admirable contrast, the article ended with a description of the middle-class, ordinary, prosaic funeral of him who should have been buried like a prince or like a pauper. It was the crowning buffet, the final victory of Philistia over art, beauty, and immaterial things. Leonard Upjohn had never written anything better. It was a miracle of charm, grace, and pity. He printed all Cronshaw's best poems in the course of the article, so that when the volume appeared, much of its point was gone. But he advanced his own position a good deal. He was thenceforth a critic to be reckoned with. He had seen before a little aloof, but there was a warm humanity about this article which was definitely attractive. End of segment three.